name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I want to start this morning by telling you about the I guess the first election that I remember voting in, it was 1984, it was a presidential election, and Ronald Reagan was voting against, uh, running against uh, Walter uh, Mondale. And I, like most Americans, I voted for Ronald Reagan back then. And, uh, and it was the, probably the greatest rejection that any presidential candidate has ever received. Uh, Walter Mondale lost to Ronald Reagan, at least in the Electoral College. He lost 525 to, uh, to 13. It was a humiliating rejection of Mondale and his ideas or what he stood for. Rejection always, always hurts, and it hurts us. You know, I don't know if you've ever felt rejection. Uh, Maybe it's my personality type, but uh, rejection seems to wound wound me deeply. I I remember when I was dating, I I didn't want to ask girls out because I was afraid that they would reject me. Now that I'm older and wiser, hey, young people, listen, let me give you some advice. You know, if you don't ask, you know, I mean, it's it's worse than rejection. You just never, you never know. But I was always so afraid of rejection, didn't want to be rejected. But in John's gospel, you know, we're, uh, we're looking at the cup that Jesus had, uh, had to drink. If you remember the story, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is praying. He's saying, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But in the end, he says, hey, but your will be done. And what we said is that in that cup that Jesus was going to drink, there would be a lot of painful things for him. There was the, the pain of betrayal by Judas. The, the pain of denial by Peter. And then last time we were together, we talked about the pain of these kangaroo courts that Jesus had to go through, these, these courts that were extremely unjust. I also suggested that in that cup was the wrath of God. And I'm going to share more about that next, next Sunday. We'll talk about why I believe that the wrath of God was in that cup for Jesus to drink. But this morning... I want you to look at one more thing that's in that cup, and that is rejection of Jesus by, by the people that he came to save. The people that God loved, the people that Jesus loved, they would reject him in whole. John would later, uh, or earlier, or no, later write, he would write, he came to his own, but those who were his own did not receive him. You know, there are many bitter cups in life, but to, to be rejected by the people that you love and the people that are dearest to your heart, those are, those, that has to be near the, near the top. And many of you have known uh, that pain of rejection. Maybe, uh, maybe you've loved your son and he's rejected you. And all your life you've just been trying to love him and he's just rejected you. Or maybe, maybe the other way around. You've just wanted to be loved by your mom or your dad. And it just seems like all your life they have rejected you and not wanted anything to do with you. Or, or maybe it's uh, the rejection of a spouse. But uh, many of us have known rejection. Well, Jesus knew it in a really big way. At the conclusion of uh, this last trial that Jesus is involved in, the the trial before Pilate, and if you remember, there were three Roman trials, really, one before Pilate, then before Herod, then back before Pilate again. And in uh, in this third trial before Pilate, he and Jesus have this discussion about truth, and he, and he asks Jesus, he says, what is truth? 
And uh, from then he goes back out to, to, to talk to the Jews, and he leaves Jesus in the room. And, uh, and here's where the rejection begins. We pick up our story in John chapter 18, verse 38. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, John 18, 38. And we're going to just be reading and working our way through the text from there. It says, after he had said this, uh, he went out to the Jews. That is, after Pilate had said to Jesus, what is truth? He went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I released one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary. Well, Pilate has not found anything wrong with Jesus. In fact, he, he really wants to find a way to release him. And uh, it's not exactly clear in John's gospel, but if we put all the gospels together, what we learn is that Pilate had an idea on how maybe to release Jesus. And at this time of the, of the Passover, he would customarily release a prisoner. And so he put two prisoners before the Jews that day. He put Jesus and, uh, and Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was uh, notorious uh, for his murder spree and being a revolutionary. And the people, obviously the people of, uh, of Israel didn't like, didn't like Barabbas. And so Pilate juxtaposes Barabbas against Jesus. And I'm pretty sure he hoped that, uh, that they would pick Jesus because they didn't want him to release Barabbas. But under the instigation of the, of the high priest and all, everybody begins to chant, they want Barabbas. They want Barabbas. At some point in all of this, it doesn't appear in John's gospel, but the other gospels tell us this. At some point, uh, Pilate receives a message from his wife. And uh, his wife tells him, says, listen, have nothing to do with this guy because there, there's, hey, he's a righteous man. Be careful with what you do with this guy. So Paul, uh, Pilate's got that working in him as well. And uh, he's in a hard spot. He's in a hard spot. Uh, he could have done anything he wanted, but here's what he did. We pick up in verse 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and clothed him in a purple robe. They had kept coming to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I, found no, I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Here is the man. So again, I, you know, I'm, I'm laboring under this thought, and I believe I'm right, that Pilate is trying to find a way to release Jesus. And so when his Barabbas Jesus thing didn't work, he then has him flogged. Now, this, we've probably already heard the story. We, we've probably seen the movies. Jesus was scourged. He was whipped with uh, what they call a cat of nine tails. It was a whip with nine strands, and embedded in the strands were pieces of pottery and, and sharp objects, so that when, they, when he was whipped, it would grab his flesh, and, and it would rip his uh, back open. By law, they were only allowed to do that 39 times. I guess they had found over time that doing it more than 39 times, people died. And so uh, they were only allowed to whip him 39 times. So they had scourged him. He was definitely bloodied. 
they beat him, it says. They mocked him. They put a purple robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and pushed it down. They, pay, they bowed down. If, if we combine all the accounts of the Gospels, they bowed down before Jesus and mocked him sarcastically, pay, paying homage to him. It says they slapped him in the face. They hit him on the head with a stick. So, I mean, Jesus is beaten and bruised. And again, I think, I think Pilate, this is orchestrated in some ways by Pilate. He brings him out, and Jesus is injured greatly. And I'm sure he was, he was really probably hard to look at. Uh, I mean, if you had any ounce of humanity in you, he was probably hard to look at because he was so, so beaten. And I think his plan was that the people would have pity on Jesus when they saw what Pilate and the soldiers had, or what the soldiers had done to him. But it was to no avail. It did not work. Verse 6. Now, we're in chapter 19, by the way, if you, if you have missed it. We're in chapter 19, following on. Verse 6, then the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, and they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourselves, since I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews, the Jews replied. According to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. So led by the priest, you know, instead of having pity on Jesus, they begin to chant, crucify him, crucify him. They're saying, kill him, kill him. They wanted Jesus to die. Now, Pilate says, I can find no reason. I can find no reason to kill Jesus. And they say, well, we've got a reason. We just don't have a law to put him to death. The reason why he should die is because he makes himself out to be the son of God. And, uh, you know, evidently, you know, at least by the, by the reading, it seems almost like Pilate was unaware of this claim by Jesus, that he claimed to be the Son of God. And it put fear in him that Jesus was saying this about himself. And so uh, we pick up in verse 9. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered, if, I hadn't, if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And from that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, Pilate wants to speak to Jesus privately, so he evidently takes him back inside. And, uh, you know, he asks him, where, where are you from? Who are you? I mean, basically, he's asking about that son of God uh, statement. And Jesus doesn't answer him. And Pilate is frustrated. And he says, don't you know I have the authority to either crucify you, like they're asking, or let you go? Don't you know I have the authority? And this time Jesus responds. And he says, you don't have any authority over me except that which God has given to you. Or you wouldn't have any authority over me if God hadn't, hadn't, given, it, hadn't given it to you. And... Um, from that moment, you know, it says Pilate is trying to release him. I, again, I contend that Pilate's been trying to release him all along. Maybe he's going to try even harder here. But when he goes back out there again, uh, this time they say to Pilate, they say, if you release him, you're against Caesar. 
And because anybody who claims to be a king is against uh, Caesar. And I'm sure Pilate, who was responsible to Caesar, I mean, you know, that was, that was probably fear-inducing as well. What are they going to say about me? What's, what's Rome going to think about me if I allow this guy who claims to be a king instead of Caesar, if I allow him to live? So verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, but Aramaic, Gabbatha. And uh, it was uh, the preparation day for the Passover. And it was uh, about noon. And he told the Jews, here is your king. You ever been so frustrated you just feel like giving up? Well, I think that's where Pilate is. He's frustrated. He's tried and tried. You know, again, all he's got to do is say, no, I'm not crucifying him, letting him go. But he's, he's caught between Rome and the Jews and not wanting a rebellion on his hand, all those kind of things. Uh, you know, history says that Pilate was under great pressure here to appease the Jews at some level. And so he says to them, here is your king. And verse 15, they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? And they respond, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And then he handed him over to be crucified. And the rejection of God's people, of Jesus, their Messiah, the Son of God, it was complete. So this rejection of Jesus, it was not unexpected by Jesus. Jesus had foretold it so many times. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus told his disciples, he said, uh, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. So what happened to Jesus, this rejection by the Jews or, or by the, the, the religious leadership of Israel. It wasn't, it wasn't something unexpected. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus said, verse 25, he said, but first he must suffer, talking about himself, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Maybe you remember um, Jesus talking about how the, um, the builders would reject the stone that would become the chief cornerstone, and he was that chief cornerstone. And uh, so this rejection of Jesus was not unexpected, and it wasn't a novel thing either. People have been rejecting God uh, from the very beginning. Let's go back to creation. And Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve rejected God's uh, desire for them when he said, hey, don't eat of the tree, but they did. And then by the time you get to Noah, most of the world is suppressing the knowledge of God and rejecting their, uh, their creator. You know, I can't help but think that probably the greatest rejection that God felt may have been, at least up until this point, may have been the rejection of this nation that he formed, the nation of Israel, because, man, they walked in rejection most of their existence. But you'll remember God has liberated them from Egypt. He's brought them out with all kinds of miracles and all kinds of wonders. And they get out of there, they, they get out of Egypt, and now they're kind of in the desert. Moses has been missing for a while. And if you remember the story, they create a golden cow. And they bowed down to it, and this is what they said. They said, you, O golden cow, are the one who brought us out of Egypt. So it just kind of goes to show what Philip Hughes said in, in a statement. He said, as the bearer of the divine image, man is inescapably a religious being who, if he does not worship the true God, he will idolatrously worship a false and finite God of his own imagination. 
And then for centuries, for centuries, Israel would just, you know, go through this cycle of rejecting God, being rebuked by God, repenting, and then being restored. And then it wouldn't take long, and they'd be rejecting God again. But you know what? Undoubtedly, uh, this rejection of Jesus as the Son of God, um, you know, where they would shout and they would say, we have no king but Caesar. Remember, Jesus has come. The kingdom of God has come. The king is here. Jesus is offering himself as their king. And they're saying, we don't want you as king. We have no king but, uh, but Caesar. And uh, surely that was uh, the pinnacle of rejection for God. So what I'd like to do for the next few moments is just talk about why do, why do people reject God? Why do men and women around the world reject, uh, reject their creator? God said he put the knowledge of himself in creation. In fact, all we got to do is look around at the universe and know that God exists. But he also says that he's embedded the knowledge of himself in our hearts. And yet what we find is that most of mankind is, uh, is suppressing the knowledge of God. Or maybe, yeah, they're suppressing the knowledge of God. They're definitely not seeking after God. So why would that be? What I'd like to do is give you three reasons why, why I believe that people reject God. And, uh, and maybe, maybe, maybe you're listening and you're a person who really hasn't, uh, by faith, embraced God and are seeking after God. Maybe that's you. Maybe one of these reasons will fit you. And, and anyway, I'm going to speak into them and we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Uh, three reasons. This is not an exhaustive list. There's probably a lot of reasons why people have rejected God, but um, but I want to give you three, which I think are probably the main reasons. Here's uh, here's my first one. I think uh, the number one reason why people reject God is because if God exists, and He does, uh, His existence threatens my own self-rule. In other words, if there is a Creator God. If there is a God who is over all, then by virtue of definition, I must surrender my life to him. I must surrender myself to him. He has the right to reign over me. He has the right to tell me what's right or wrong. And, uh, and we don't want that. We really want to rule our own lives now, the Jews of Jesus' day, they loathed Caesar. They could not stand Roman occupation. They did not believe that Caesar was their legitimate king. But compared to bending the knee to Jesus, these Jewish leadership men, they, they were willing to say, we gladly take Caesar as our king. So why, why? Why would they take Caesar over Jesus? Here's why. Because Caesar just ruled the externals. Jesus was claiming that he had the right to rule over their hearts. He had the right to rule over their thinking and what was right, what was wrong, their actions. And uh, they didn't want that. The natural man fights to retain control over his life. And it's really only after we're conquered by by the knowledge of God and the understanding of the grace and goodness of God that we, uh, we will bow the knee to God himself. The self-centeredness of man drives him to rule his own life. We, we, we want no other king but ourself. And uh, so when Jesus comes along and says, hey, I, I have the right to be king over your life, when Jesus plainly says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me, most of us, you know, we're not willing to do that. We're not willing to surrender uh, our lives to him. Self-denial is the very opposite of self-rule. 
And so to be Christ's disciple, I've got to be willing to surrender self-rule and let God rule over my life. That means he gets to rule over my desires and my ambitions. I bend my knee willingly to submit in humility before Jesus as my king. Now, I, I'd written in my notes that surrendering to God is hard. And as soon as, I wrote, as soon as I wrote those words down, I had this thought cross my heart. And, and the thought was this, and it was the words of Jesus. Hey, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jimmy, why are you writing that uh, surrendering to God is hard? Well, I thought about that for a few minutes, and I want you to know that following Jesus uh, is easy. His burden is light. Uh, his yoke is easy. What I mean by that, following Jesus, I mean, God changes our life and following him is good and it is easy. But you know, getting to the point of being willing to surrender ourselves to take on the yoke of Jesus or to, to take on his burden, I mean, getting to that point of, of surrender, that's, that's another story. That's really, really hard. And I think one of the reasons why people reject God, and I think this is the, probably the primary reason why these Jewish these Jewish leaders rejected Jesus was they didn't want to surrender their own self-rule to him. Here's the second reason I think it's that people reject God. And, uh, and this reason is that they cannot fathom how a God who is good and all-powerful and you know, knows everything, how there can be so much evil in the world and such a God exists. And if there is a God who's all good and all powerful and so much evil exists in the world, I don't want to follow him, they say. And they reject him for, uh, for that reason. The problem of reconciling an all-powerful good God with the evil that exists all around us and the tragedies, I mean, that, that, is, that is a that is a tough argument. That's a powerful argument, and it's caused endless discussions, not just among unbelievers, but among believers as well. And no, none of us that are thinking can deny what a thorny issue that is for us, especially when it really touches your life and, and your child dies accidentally uh, or you, somebody you love is dying of some degenerative disease and taking their life early or... Um, there's a whole nation of people who are systematically hunted and murdered by a different nation. How can there be a good God and all of those things go on? I'm, I'm sure some people are even saying things like, how can there be, here and we'll talk about COVID-19, how can there be COVID-19 and, and there be a good God? And so when they're faced with, you know, the really difficult, tragic, hard things in life, and the idea that there's a good God, they say, well, no, those two things can't exist together. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to reject God. There cannot be a good God when so much uh, uh, terrible things, hard things happen uh, in life. Darwin, Charles Darwin, you know, if you go back and read his stuff, probably one of the, one of the things that stumbled him and put him on the track that, that he ended up on was the death of his daughter, daughter Annie. When tragedy touches us, it's, it's, it's really, really hard. Now, when it does touch us, we tend to, or we can, not, not tend to, I shouldn't say, but, but we can embrace the idea that Richard Dawkins uh, proposes. And he, this is why he says evil exists in the world. He says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, 
blind physical forces and genetic replication. Some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So a lot of people, man, when, when faced with this, you know, this, these two truths that seem antithetical, you know, they opt to say, well, I'm going to reject God. There is no God because... Now, there, there may be another reason why evil exists. By the way, we've talked about this a lot. That's our theodicy. Why does evil exist when there's such a good and gracious God? Now, corollary truth, before I talk about an answer to that in a way, let, let, me, let me give you corollary truth to this. Uh, it's just a nuance of difference, but people, I think, reject God because they end up being disappointed with God because he doesn't do things exactly the way they want him to. He doesn't answer their prayers, and, uh, and they don't understand why. So maybe they're not rejecting God. They see the evil in the world, but they say, you know, God exists. But they have expectations because they follow him that God is somehow going to you know, in his goodness, keep them from harm. And uh, when that doesn't happen, when we've prayed with all our heart, people tend, or people, some people can reject God because of that. Maybe we, maybe we should call this the corollary of unanswered prayer, when God doesn't do what we think he ought to do. You know, I don't know how many of you saw the movie, uh, God is Not Dead, or God's Not Dead. But in that movie, there's an atheistic professor who's at the center of the plot, and I mean, he's really hostile towards God. And later in the movie, he's having a conversation with a pastor. And it's kind of one of those times he lets his guard down. And he talks about what happened to him when he was a child. And when he was a child, he prayed and prayed and prayed for his mom to not die of cancer. But she died anyway. And when she died, I guess his heart grew hard to, to the idea that there's a God out there. And... Uh, the pastor trying to answer him, the pastor says to, the, to this atheist professor, he says, you know, sometimes God says no to our prayers. And then the professor with this kind of resigned voice reflects and he says, he says no a lot. You know, I think a lot of times I felt that way. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but it seems like God says no a lot to some of the things that, uh, that we ask him for. And it's one thing that God might say no to our selfish requests, like, God, I need a bigger house, or God, I need a new car, or something of that nature, right? It's a different thing when we're praying these altruistic prayers with passion and with love for someone, and, and our child is dying of cancer, or you've been without work for months and months, and you can't put food on the, on the table, and you're about to lose your house and repossess your car, or, or, let's, you, know, or you have a loved one who's just destroying themselves with, with substance abuse, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and you've, and you've helped, and you've helped, and there just doesn't seem to be any change. And it might even be different if, you know, the Bible, you know, wasn't so clear about God's love for us, how he's a loving father, how he hears our prayers, that his will can never be, never be thwarted. Here are some things that we know about God, that he says he's going to do justice for his people, uh, that nothing can prevent him from doing what he pleases. And so, you know, when these hard things happen in life and our prayers aren't answered, you know, sometimes people reject God for that because they say, well, God's not, God's not for me. 
Now, I really wish I had some great answers to this question because this is this is such a this is such a big uh, big question. You know, why does this happen to us uh, this way? And, and I don't have a I don't have an all um, I don't have an all encompassing sort of answer for you. I will agree that God sometimes says no because he's got uh, a different plan for, for what we're asking for. In other words, we're asking for something, but God's got a plan that's different than ours. And that is definitely true. And if you don't believe me, let's, let's, let's look at Jesus. Because Jesus earlier in this very same evening has prayed, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Please, he prayed three times. I mean, he was so, so concerned about this. You know, the tension, the stress was so great for Jesus. And, uh, and yet God has said no. God has said no, and, and, and we know that God has another plan because they're going to kill Jesus, but in three days, God's going to raise him from the dead, and, and that death of Jesus would be what is going to free us from the curse of death. So God had a different plan. God, God had a reason for saying no, and so we need to understand that there are a lot of times that God says no to things because he has a, he has a different plan for us, and we need to trust him in that, but you know, it's a... Uh, but even that's not always satisfying. We, we, we get it that Jesus had to die for us, but we, we often say in our heart, I think we often say in our heart something like this, but God, you're, you're, you're all-knowing, all-powerful. Couldn't the plan have, couldn't you have worked this out in a different way? I mean, did my mama have to die? Did my child have to rebel? Did they have to kill all the Jews like that to work about your plan? So sometimes... Sometimes those, those hard things like that, you, you know, the answer that God has a, a, another plan, that is, uh, that's still hard. So um, I, don't, I don't have a, a, again, I've said this already, I don't have a perfect answer, but here's a, a couple things I want to say to you. One is, I want to say from the very beginning, it, uh, hard things, um, evil things have happened to God's people from the very beginning. So it's not like God has ever deceived us and said, hey, listen, you follow me and hard things aren't going to happen to you. It's never been like that. Uh, let's go back to the very beginning. The bad brother kills the good brother in Genesis chapter 4. Famines occur against God's, where God's people are suffering for it. Uh, Rachel Jacob's beloved wife dies in childbirth. Nations more evil than Israel conquer Israel. Livelihoods and families and good health are destroyed by the enemy in Job. You know, a man uh, who God says is the greatest man who's been born of women is murdered in prison by an evil woman and by a, a, a wimpy king, if you would. Righteous men, uh, their truthful sermons are rejected by others and then they're killed because of it. Sometimes our prayers are lifted up and things are granted to us, but other times they're not. They're not. So again, I want you to understand that God, God has not from the beginning said, hey, listen, you follow me and everything is going to go your way and you're not going to suffer. He's not said that. There could be, we could talk about a number of reasons why suffering might be in the world. I, I don't really want to do that this morning. I do want to say one more thing to you, though, about this. And again, I don't know if this would be helpful to you if you're one of those who's rejected God because, because of suffering and you can't, you can't make it work together. There, there's a good God and yet we suffer. Here, here's the, the, the last thing I'd say to you about this, and that is that God himself chose to enter into our suffering. In fact, you know, if, if what we believe is true, that Jesus is God become one of us, 
than what I've been talking about for the last few weeks, everyone, that Jesus is drinking this cup with betrayal and rejection and false accusations and trials and, and, uh, and all of that. Jesus has entered into our suffering. God has chosen to enter into our suffering. So for whatever reason God has allowed and there is suffering in this world, I mean, God's not exempt, exempting himself from it. He's entering it, uh, he's entering in, into it with us. And um, so let me move on. So people reject, they reject God. I'm, I'm giving you three reasons. They reject God because, hey, if, they're, if I acknowledge God, then he has the right to rule in my life because he's my creator. And another reason they reject God is because they can't make it work that there's a good God and there's so much evil in the world. They can't make that fit in their head. And then the third reason I think that people believe, uh, reject God, and, and this is where it gets really personal for us who follow Jesus, is we as followers of Jesus ourselves have given men and women pause to follow God. In other words, they're rejecting God because of what they see in us. You know, John, Barna, George Barna did a research, and they found that only 30% of Americans have a positive view of us as evangelical Christians. Only 30%. Ravi Zacharias says that um, of all the questions that he, all the questions that he receives, the one that's troubled him the most has, has been this idea. Well, here's a question from a Hindu friend, and he says, this, he gets questions like this all the time. It says, if this conversion you speak about is truly supernatural, then why is it not more evident in the lives of so many Christians that I know? In other words, why is it that we claim that Jesus trans transforms our life by the new birth experience, by, by the Spirit of God coming into us, and we're, we're different, we're transformed, we're changed, and yet people say, how come we don't see it? How come we don't see it in people? Mahatma Gandhi, you remember he's that, that great Hindu um, Indian leader, and uh, he was really intrigued with Christianity. He read the Gospels, and he really wanted to know more about Jesus, but when he was confronted with Christians, he ended up rejecting uh, Jesus. And he said, his words were, I would have become a Christian if it were not for Christians. All three of these examples, I mean, they're, they're saying the same thing. People are rejecting God because, because we're his representatives and we claim to represent him in what they're seeing in us. They're rejecting God because of what they're seeing in us. It's why God so often you know, confronts our hypocrisy and speaks against it. It's why he says, if you're going to follow me, follow me. Now, again, let me, let me be honest. You know, like I said before, God's, God has, has never said, God's never said that we're not going to suffer. The Bible just shows us that from the very beginning. Well, the Bible also shows us that we who follow Jesus, those of us who seek God, that we're just as broken as everyone else, all right? Uh, and that's why we need Jesus, that's why we need God, because we're, we're broken. The Bible doesn't hide our brokenness. From the very beginning, we've got Abraham's lying and Jacob's deception and David's adultery. And then we've got uh, the disciples abandoning Jesus. And then we've got Peter's denial. And then we, we jump into the New Testament and we've got Peter and Paul, or Barnabas and Paul not getting along. And then you've got Peter and Paul Peter being confronted because he's acting hypocritically, uh, and Paul confronts him with that. We're never claiming to be perfect. But here's what we do claim, everyone. We claim that Jesus has changed us. We claim that he has transformed us. Paul would say things like this. He would enumerate all kinds of sinful lifestyles. And then he would say, and such were some of us. 
You know? In other words, we used to be like that, but now we're different. So, beloved, listen, I'm not saying that we have to be perfect. God knows we're not perfect. God knows we're going to fall. But here's what I am saying. I mean, we need to be salt and light, and we need to be real and repentant and faithful. We need to stay connected to Jesus so, so that his spirit can change us and transform us so that when people like Gandhi are, are looking to Jesus and they're looking at us to see Jesus, they actually see him. They actually see the Jesus that walked the earth. They see him living his life, life through us. I mean, if you happen to be here this morning and you've rejected, well, actually, you're not here, but if you happen to be listening this morning and you've rejected Jesus because of one of us followers, here's what I want to say to you. And again, I'm not trying to make excuses for us, but I am trying to say to you, stop looking at us. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus because he's the author. The Bible says he's the author and perfecter of our faith. And, and he really is our king and our savior. He's the one who has lived without sin. And he's the only perfect one who doesn't fail you. So, so look to him, especially if somebody has, 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 um, has let you down who's a follower of Jesus. You know, look to Jesus one more time. All right, well, that's, that's the end of my talk this morning. Those are the things that I wanted to say to you. Um, so let me just conclude by asking a couple of rhetorical questions for you to consider there at home while, while you're thinking about these things. So for, let's, let's talk about rejection of God. If you're listening and, and really you'll be honest with yourself and you say, you know, I've really held God at, at an arm's length. I've sort of rejected God. If one of these three reasons uh, has anything to do with it, would you, would you reconsider? Well, again, uh, the, the first one about, hey, you know, God has the right to rule in our life, but I want you to know this about God. He is a, uh, he is a benevolent, he is a benevolent creator who loves us, whose burden is, is um, was a light, his yoke is easy. You know, again, I know you have to surrender uh, your self-rule. You have to be willing to follow him. Jesus says, come and follow me. But uh, following Jesus is, will be the best thing you've ever done. And you'll find joy and rest like you've never known if you follow Jesus. Now, if you're rejecting uh, Jesus, to go back and try to remember my second reason was, oh, for reject, oh, because bad things have happened to you. And again, this is, this is a, this is a hard one for me to answer. I don't, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, men have been struggling with this question for since the beginning of time, I guess. But uh, again, just remember what I said. God, God has never promised us that we're not going to suffer. Never. Actually, He said you're going to have trials and suffering. He said that, uh, and He entered into our suffering. And uh, you know, you know, most of you know. I, I mean, I've had to suffer following Jesus, uh, suffering the loss of, of one of my children. And what I found during that time is, oh, it hurt like crazy, but Jesus with, with, was with me and he never abandoned me. And, and he'll do the same for you in your suffering. So don't, you know, don't let suffering keep you from knowing uh, and loving this, this great Savior. And then again, uh, just let me reiterate, if it's one of us that's, that's caused you to reject God, then you know, stop looking at us and, and, and look towards our Savior. And for those of us that do follow Jesus, I want to say one more thing right here. Man, let's not be the reason why 
people don't follow Jesus. Let's, man, let's live for Jesus, everyone. Let's, uh, man, in this, in this time where everybody's nervous and everybody's fearful and there's a lot of anxiety, let's, uh, let's, let's trust in the Lord. Let's give people a reason to want to know Jesus because of what they see, uh, what they see in us. Second, Second Corinthians 1, 9, I think it's one of my favorite verses now. And it says this, and you may have heard me talk about it already, but it, it says, uh, we have this death sentence over us, but it's so that we will not trust in ourselves, but so that we'll trust instead in the God who raises the dead. So, beloved, let's follow after God, and let's love God. And uh, anyway, I hope you found this, uh, this teaching time helpful. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.